Hi listeners and welcome to an episode of the David Crit podcast. My name is Britt Lawton. Today's episode is extracted from a conversation that took place on the 28th of August 2019 between Stephen Hobbs and Jacqueline Flint. The conversation was basically about Stephen Hobbs and his latest exhibition titled Body Parts, which kind of looks into his usual themes related to the theater of war, buildings and construction sites as well as a personal intervention into his own medical history and how that has related to a lot of the themes that he's worked with. Enjoy. Stephen, I'm going to preface our discussion a little bit. You can call it a disclaimer if you want to. Um, Reason being that, after having worked with you for many years, on various projects. Um, When I came into this exhibition and then was faced with the task of preparing a a short list of things that I'd like to address, I found it very difficult. Uh, Mainly because in this room, most of the visual languages that I have experienced in, in working with you have been pulled together. But on top of that, there's a, there's a personal aspect to this show which I haven't seen before. So to isolate one thing or another becomes then very difficult because as you stand and you look around, your eye bounces from work to work, from wall to wall, from corner to corner. They all make sense in relation to each other. And, and so that, that is my disclaimer. What I have done has prepared three uh, sets of things that are at first not necessarily immediately associated, but which in the context of the show and in the context of the video that we just watched do hang together, if you will, which I'd like you to respond to. The first one is um, as follows. Are you going to give me all three in one go? No, no. Excellent. <laughs> Never. Now I remember. <laughs> Neither will I. <laughs> the first one is <clears throat> the body, the built environment, and engineering. This is the structural impact of the stress response. So I'm going to break away for a moment to explain briefly, the structural impact impact of the stress response, not the physiological impact of the stress response, because I think we all, to a certain extent, have some understanding of that at this stage, because most of us are overworked. Most of us are in a constant state of fight or flight, so we kind of understand what that does to our hormones, what that does to our, you know, doctors like to use phrases like the cortisol curve, etc. The structural impact of the stress response is also quite specific in terms of what that fight or flight moment does to the spine. I'm thinking specifically of your experience with the guy in Rudd Road, but uh, on a body level, it doesn't matter whether it's that or an unpleasant email. The stress response is the same, and the first thing that happens is the toes curl, right? because it's very important at that moment to grip onto the earth. Your calf muscles and your hamstrings become taut because in that moment you prepare yourself either to fight or to flee. 
Your spine does the following. Your tailbone tucks, because that's how you're standing. Your head comes down, because if you lose your head, you are dead. As a result of that, the atlas bone shifts forward. And so the normal curvature of your spine, which is something like that, like an S, becomes contracted. If you stay in that mode for long enough, which we do, eventually you will have digestive issues and so on, so it goes on. So that um, you dealt with quite a lot in your video. What it made me think of immediately is the relationship between that spine over there, which is the 3D printed spine, and the work next to it, which is the building. And the work that you made many years ago in which you chucked a video camera down the central uh, core. core of Ponty Tower. It should be said that in Jacqueline's um, description of how perhaps um, Cro-Magnon man, woman, <laughs> might have been in fight or flight mode, that whole toe gripping thing and whatever, is very primal, right? It's like you would have grabbed the nearest cliff or rock and held on tight to see how you're going to take this bear on and so on. So, okay, so a lot of, a lot, anyway, but she stood up and she demonstrated it, which she deprived us of tonight. So there was a whole thing that she did. It was very funny um, and very elegant in an, in an odd sort of way. Which I think is appropriate to take the mickey out of because uh, my first thought while you're coalescing all of these inputs and forces is that um, the, the challenges around uh, the, 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 the challenges around translation. So, like, how do you describe for a viewer the experience uh, when you're trying to think about um, ways of talking about uh, abject dysfunctional urban conditions that are directly linked to the psyche, and how particular types of design are really bad for the body? So. To be specific about the suicide film that I made in 1998, throwing the eight, uh, eight millimeter film camera down Ponty City on a parachute made out of string, a coat hanger, and a plastic packet and some gaffer tape to prevent the chamber from potentially breaking and exposing the film when it hit the ground. The initial, the reason for doing that piece of work was in part a response to the fact that Ponty City was so notorious for, for being a, 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 a place from which people could quite conveniently jump. Whether you were base jumping or fit or whether you were jumping through the inner core where there was a, a bizarre kind of privacy as opposed to jumping from the outside and straight into the sports fields below or something like that. But it's the way in which a design prom, um, forces us to misbehave. So spend two, we're on deadlines and we're sitting behind the computer and the pain accrues behind the neck. It's the kinds of points that Jacqueline was referring to earlier. But as I'm always interested in, I'm probably going way off point now, but um, I'm always interested in the fact that in, in, in the, modern, the modernist project in architecture there is this, there is this like, um, there is a, there is an, there's an international school of thought in modernism around a style, a form, a way of working with material, a, a way of creating boxes that are both suggestive of a kind of functionalism and a minimalism, and then they have all kinds of semi-functional, comfortable furniture in it or not. And this is a kind of lifestyle proposition. But Walter Gropius, um, one of the architects of the Bauhaus movement, would 
may not be the first person to admit it, but he, you know, in his grave probably has to acknowledge that his buildings were freezing cold in the winter and super hot in the summer. So, you know, therein lies the predicament around the aspiration for a particular vision of how we craft cities linked to design and in actual fact we're not really thinking about the people who occupy the spaces in the first place. So to that end, Ponte City is a perfect example if we look at design from a socio-cultural point of view because Ponte's initial vision, like with many big mega projects that are intended to kind of captivate a new idea around living and urbanism and, and lifestyle, is that it's a self-contained space that you can, you can live in Ponty City, you can get your laundry done there, you can uh, go to the movies, there are supermarkets, all this kind of stuff. So, you can die. You, well, we're getting to the dying part in, in, in a sec. So, so, so all of that is the vision for it and that's how we sell it. It's the self-contained living experience and if you want to be part of that new generation of occupants, you're going to, ha you're going to benefit from this from this kind of ecosystem of convenience. When in actual fact, we know for a fact that the moment you start living too far off the ground and you happen to be an unhappy person or life is not going so well, there is a bona fide connection between being detached from the ground, thinking of unconsciously or consciously thinking about your state of mind, and then potentially thinking about how this building could be a tool towards your own end. And so the film, to the point about translation, about finding, so the point is I used to pay my rent at Ponty City. For seven years I'd go there, pay it, write out a check, because I was living in Rudd Road and that's the building managers happen to have offices in Ponty. So there's something bizarre about going there to do something as practical as write a check, pay your rent, get in the car, go to the market theater, to get back to work, which is where I worked in those days. And the lifts were stuck, and on that occasion I had to go into the inner core, which I didn't know existed. Many, many of us don't know that about Ponty City. It's become super famous today due to many artists' work on the building. But at that time, that was something of an unknown thing. And in the 90s, it was also known as Little Zaire. It's a very space of kind of angst and anxiety about Africa kind of colonizing uh, Hillbrow. And to experience that volume and that concentric floor design, and then to kind of pause back and see the clouds moving through the open circumference, the circle, and then getting this feeling of vertigo made me start contemplating a range of ideas and thoughts around how does one experience the shock of that core coupled with the fact that there's such tremendous urban legend around suicide and that the building now, 20 years, 30 years on from its original intention, could be conceived as a kind of a death machine, if not a facilitator of alienation and death, if not literal death, little deaths on a, on a, on a daily basis, which aesthetically, conceptually, intellectually is stunning because we all want cool things that don't hurt us. So you've brought me very beautifully to my next set of things, uh, concepts I suppose which are as follows. Um, but before I get there, in fact, I'd like to just draw attention to this work which you've moved around the corner here, which you all can come and look at just now. <laughs> and there's a, there was another work on a table, which was a paper bone. It's there. There it is. We can lift it now because the projection is on. That work as well. Emil, which is, don't break the art. <laughs> which is the art. A, a, a bone made out of paper, which has 
which is concealed at, um, and in a section which indicates immediately, unconsciously, I suppose, that there is work, there is work going on on that bone. Something, something is wrong with it. You know, something's happened to it. It's broken in some way, and some form of engineering will be able to fix it. What impact that will have, we are not quite sure, but that space is uh, concealed. Um, similarly to that, there, you know, that paper, that that paper bone around the corner there has been uh, created by drilling holes through the paper, which in itself is quite a violent thing to do to a piece of paper. Actually, Mr. Hobbs drilled through it with a drill bit. It's quite hectic, mm. uh, but it works. Um, and the next uh, set of concepts that I wanted to bring together are the theatre of war. Uh, the operating theatre and um, the spectacle of making. Uh, specifically in relation to bringing an understanding of the built environment and, and the politics of the urban landscape um, to the physicality of a lived experience. Mm. And uh, I'd like to move from those works to those works now uh, because in my mind, those works, which are much more abstract, uh, speak very much to this pulling experience through form in a particular way uh, with a particular language that you've developed over the last couple of decades. So um, my company that I co-direct with Marcus Neustetter called the Trinity Session that was start, founded in 2001, along with Catherine Smith and Jose Ferreira, uh, was, was initially just a collective to survive the bleak landscape of the art world in those days. We don't have, we have an art economy today. It might be on its knees, but we have one. In those days, it didn't even have knees. I don't know what it was. It was just a corpse. Maybe it was a paper bone. <laughs> Look, the point, the irony of that piece of work, of course, is that it's, a, it's a, not a bone, it's paper, right? Being attended to, triage in, in a war zone. So those are important things to, um, to assert in the way that that object is formed. And, and one, one hopes that when um, viewers of, of an art object, yourselves included, of course, look at this thing, there's enough elements there for you to conclude that this is about something that is, an, uh, is in a state of becoming, is unnaturally contained or whatever. So it's a surgery of sorts that's taking place there. But to the point about starting the Trinity session in 2001, within, the first, within about three years of uh, practicing, we soon moved into a lot of urban realm stuff, urban design, architecture, specifically through public art programs and commissioning small, medium, and very large-scale um, sculptural installations. And what shook me as an artist who knows pretty much what he's doing, I mean, I can bullshit you to think otherwise, but I kind of have an idea of my purpose every day. I don't overly question myself. I'm confident in that way, and that's, that's a, a lucky thing. But there's nothing more astonishing and interesting to be thrown into a boardroom 
with the professional team responsible for building a building or doing a piece of urban upgrade, public realm, urban design, and you've got a project manager, everyone has one attender to be at that table, my, ourselves included. So you have the project manager who's a consultant. You have the client's <coughs> development manager who is responsible for making sure the project runs on behalf of the city and the client. You have a quantity surveyor, a series of engineers, structural, and typically structural and civil. Um, you have electrical engineers, you have the contractor, the guy who's responsible for putting the bricks and mortar down. And then you get introduced in the table, and this is, um, this is Stephen Hobbs, uh, he will be running the Artworks program, and instantly you are laughed at, but literally laughed out of the room. So you have to fight your way back in over time by speaking their language, civils engineering language, structural engineering language, the language of project management, which has a whole lot of shitty terminology about milestones and goals and all this kind of stuff, <laughs> about, about convincing them that you actually know how to um, project a timeline with a cash flow projection against it, with an understanding of the materiality, and most importantly, a defense for how this stuff will be built in a maintainable way, because all they want to prove is that you are not competent in this field because you're an artist, you don't, all you have is a fine art degree. So it, 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 this, is, this, is the, this is the hard end of an artist's job when working way outside of the comfort zone of these precious little spaces. And of course it's in this context that one publishes and tonight we are producing knowledge and meaning and we're consuming in a particular way, but in the public realm and being Joe Burgers and, and traversing our city, the kind of decision making that's linked to budgets and municipal kind of dysfunctionality is so intense and in some instances so chronically dysfunctional that one, if you are artistically inclined and inclined towards, um, on the one hand, doing things in a, in a professional way and conforming to how the professional teams require information and how you deliver a project versus how you deliver an exhibition or an artwork. For me, these things sit in parallel with one another, but this is a much safer space than perhaps the levels of risk and accountability that are found there in that world of building things because the risk factor is so high. So I can't help feeling, and, but that's not to say that the risk factor in this context isn't as high too, but it's, it's measured against different, a different understanding of what the outcomes really are and what the intentions are. Because you're at war here too, and the spectacle is, in, in, is possibly um, bigger here. Well, it, you, know, you, right. you really do have that theatre of war spectacle of making thing at play here as much as you do out there. Because, I, I, you're, no. because you're experimenting more. Well, I'd like to think so, but there's nothing more compelling. I mean, the entire world was captivated by the collapse of the World Trade Center, the, the, the Twin Towers. And even more so, the, the spectacle of the cleanup and the spectacle of the, of the, of the, the site under construction, because it's all, it's all embalmed in the tragedy in a loss of life, in a terror, an act of terrorism. But on closer scrutiny, and this is not a popular opinion, you might find that the entire thing was completely orchestrated. And if you go into forensic thing, you would understand that those buildings were tactically 
struck and, 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 and collapsed in a very specific way. Um, and the, their collapse speaks to the anatomy of their design and the efficiency or inefficiency of their materiality to outlive their original lifespan. Or, and I, I mean, here's the irony, so it's to the point of the pathos of the work. The architect, the Japanese architect of the Twin Towers, way before the creation of the Twin Towers in the 70s, produced a, a, a residential complex in St. Louis in, 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 um, in the Midwest called um, Pruitt Igo. And it was in the spirit of Le Corbusier's sort of like density solutions for America and so on, it was flatlands and, and landscape and public space. And it started out with the same vision as Ponte City, but within a short space of time just devolved into gangland. And if you visit Pruitt Igo in St. Louis today, it's an urban forest and the only thing that remains are the substations that powered the place. So there's something quite evocative about the spectacle of the creation of a building, equally the spectacle of the demolition of the building, not specifically aeroplanes crashing into buildings. And, and I think our natural state of curiosity around those things is, a re, is it's kind of like a mirror on our lives. This is properly artificial stuff, but the life and death of, the building, of a building is directly related to the, the lived experience of the occupants of that building. So the intention to humanize things off the back of what feels like a zone of conflict, apropos the, the war condition, the battlefield, literally the battlefield, but also a construction site as a place of extreme animosity because everyone typically fights with everyone. And Warren Seabritz has a wonderful phrase, it may not literally be his, but I always cite him with it saying, a war zone always looks peaceful from above. And it's interesting when you start getting distance and perspective, like alternative perspective on extreme spectacle, that the way it performs and presents is not necessarily how it appears to be on the ground. And so, for me, the, 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 the relationship of working in the built environment and then working in this way with so many different visual language systems, and I do acknowledge at, the, at this moment in time, because it's such a, a, an important moment in helping to translate some of the physiological, internal, external, public things, the guys are sitting there. Herman edited the video tonight. He's sitting over there. Gary with the beards, beautiful beard. Beautiful Gary. And Rick Meister right over there. That's, that's part of the Eden Labs crew over there. And these guys are very interested in, in problem solving with artists in this way, that how we look at in, interiority, exteriority, and finding tools to express that in hyper-poetic, evocative ways. And dare I say, there is a utopian vision that comes out of the Eden Labs project. How can we use art and technology to provoke really beautiful um, scenarios around rethinking the physical, the virtual, um, and, the, and the really intangible at, at, a, at, a, at a, a kind of heightened level, a kind of operating theater of sorts. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to my next group of concepts, which is a war room a la Churchill's bunker, which I can't believe you haven't seen, but you will. Um, surveillance, and here I'm thinking specifically about, I'm not thinking about drones, you know. I'm thinking about the kind of surveillance that caught the guy putting the sticks into the 
electric fence. It's that kind of surveillance that you can, you know, you can sit at your MacBook and watch the 16 cameras around your house and the one on the street. So war room, surveillance, and um, augmented surgery. And this specifically in the context of um, generating different storytelling opportunities. The ones that you are already so versed in are um, the, the very visual ones. Um, the, the, the printmaking is more experiential for me because it was produced in that kind of a space. I think Jill can attest to the fact that a print workshop also looks very peaceful from above. It's not always the case. <laughs> um, so that's what you see in this room. Um, uh, those kinds of journeys, um, but what you start engaging with in the theatre piece. Um, not more so, but in a different way, is um, sort of engaging materiality in a different way. I will be very interested to see how those kinds of journeys affect these kinds of journeys, particularly because you are a collaborator. Mm. So to the war room thing, I think what's for me, um, so if you're, so in, 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 in corporate world, a war room is a, is a highly sort of plugged in boardroom with a tremendous amount of technology that makes it possible for you to connect to other offices where you want to have a conversation around global domination and you've got the, you've got the table mounted PA system and you've got cameras everywhere and you can have in real time across multiple time zones all the relevant directors in a room making big decisions about whether we should do Marikana again. It's as cynical as that. But it's also powerful because it's about how technology connects and, and facilitates and enables. The war room of Churchill is not dissimilar, but the war room of the Second World War in London is a series of underground bunkers with a lot of maps plotting the various theatres that were going to be played out on the Western Front, particularly the D-Day landings, which was a, a, a global effort by the Allies to take over the Atlantic Wall. And I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but they are very beautiful things. They may, I mean, if you look at that very large work made up of lots of different proofs that you've worked on top of, and you've drawn lines, and you've mapped, you've mapped a course on there, they, they're not, they look not dissimilar to that when you're standing on the other side of the glass. Yeah. You, know, you stand, and there's a long table, and, on, and the one wall is just, in, just completely covered with things that look like that. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, sorry, and now I'm, now I'm sort of going off on a small tangent, but um, just to, I have to say it, what's most interesting to me about that work in that context is um, how your complex medical history, which you've never dealt with before, I've been waiting a long time to see how, when and how it will come into this kind of work. Uh, you know, how you've, mapped, how you've mapped that, which is very personal how you've chosen to deal with that, what, what material choices you've chosen in relation to that stuff too. Because living in a compromised body structure is also at being at war to a certain extent. 
So I can still answer some of your earlier questions off the back Sorry. of what you were just saying here now. So to, to pick up on, on, on the, the David Crutt workshop and working with Jill and her team of printers and, and, and David in terms of the way that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, to get to making an exhibition like this is the result of seven or eight shows with David Crook projects. We've done many projects in many different places, but many of them return to this room. And the conversation always kind of begins somehow with paper and evolves to printmaking. And then, and then David will see something and say, well, why don't you try that? And why don't you do this? And it would be amazing. And so he's always, it's his, it's his, um, curiosity around the making process that he doesn't get into in an intense way. He doesn't spend all day long guiding you through a process. It just simply says, that's interesting. Why don't you do that big? It's as simple as that. And then we talk, and the team, May, Brits, Jill, the rest of the troops aren't here tonight. And then, we, and then we start to understand how to do that. And in some instances, I solve a lot of those problems in the studio myself, and other, other times they happen in the workshop. But to those three very um, invisible images and their etching plates that sit on this table here to the issue of violence or to the issue of how to, how to make marks that involve a kind of intensive interaction with the material that will produce the mark. I'm talking literally about putting copper plates into, a, into an acid bath. Those etching plates have been, some of them have been sitting in the acid for um, up to eight hours, and that was intentional. I wanted, to, I wanted to understand how I could work with etching plates and really corrupt them, corrode them. I wasn't concerned about making a perfect suite of prints. I was concerned about making sculpture. I was interested in the two millimeter, one and a half millimeter thickness of the plate, the softness of the metal, which, in a, and of course, copper is corporeal in a way. It is a conductor. It's a soft metal. It's, it, it is the sinew and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the kind of conductive tissue of buildings and electrical systems and all that kind of stuff. So in a way, it has a, it has a biological quality, if you will, if you're going to make those analogies. But to etch it and etch it and etch it until it, it, it almost collapses is the act of violence in pursuit of a very poetic uh, image that requires a lot of effort to see. So we do damage on the plate in order to produce a situation that makes the looking complex, pleasurable or not. And that whole process of trying to, and that's why in the use of a very reductive form of razzle-dazzle camouflage circa World War I, the etching plates appear there in that composition. Each plate is there, one-to-one -one scale. They've been traced on the paper. The paper is deliberately dissected and off-kilter to speak to a, an, an incomplete construction of something that could be body-like. Um, and I'm, I'm probably not now answering your questions and your, your points anymore, but I do want to just reflect on what this exhibition does for me when I look at it. And I have to say that I suppose many of us as artists who are not, for those of us who, who are not entirely dependent on a, buyer's on a buying market, we, who have the luxury to make what we want to make, and I, and I more or less have that luxury, I suppose. My interest to, in a situation like tonight or in any given situation 
is to create enough, enough moments for the viewer to have to just immerse themselves in their own questions, not have any answers, just wow, that's interesting, oh, I'm attracted to that, oh, let's go and see that over there. And before you know it, your eye is doing work that you're not even conscious it's doing. I'm, I hope I'm making literally the muscles of your eyes work. You have to, seeing is, a, is an active thing. But it's more than seeing, it's, it's unraveling and revealing and peeling and all of this. And if you think about what happens on the surface of paper and the surface on the eye and the space between, that's, that's what we do all day long. And I believe really interesting art, like mine, tonight, <laughs> aims to achieve that, where, where it's non-verbal, it's entirely intuitive, but there's enough ha happening at a cognitive level that you might be able to find your own sense of conflict and therefore come to Hobbes's mind, Hobbes's war room, Hobbes's complex space of trying to, trying to resolve issues. And to be perfectly honest, I don't really want to make it easy. I just want to make it layered and pleasurable in a perhaps contradictory way sometimes. You've actually um, uh, spoken to my set of things perfectly in that. Okay. Uh, because it really was, when I put those together, it really was, um, I really was thinking about ways of seeing, um, which is really the great challenge, but also the great sort of pull factor of the visual arts, or any, any, any really art form, but visual arts specifically, because you do have to use your eye muscles in order to do this stuff. Um, that the artist's way of seeing, the artist's mode of seeing, um, will influence the viewer in such a way, but not necessarily the way in which you think, not necessarily the way in which they think. Um, and all the decisions that are made between the conception of the artwork in the mind's eye and what the actual eye sees on the wall are, um, are important for the artist but equally important for the viewer whether they know that or not. Mm. Um, and in true, Hob to, to true Hobbesian form, so much of it is about concealment. Um, I just, uh, th there's one last thing which you said to me in a conversation over the last couple of weeks. It's just one thing. Um, you mentioned to me that you would like to move forward and at this point I must say I, I do uh, consider you in quite an interesting space in that you're in motion. You're about to move physically yourself and your family to another place. Um, a lot of the work you've made over the last 20 years has been about Johannesburg. Um, you're now going to find yourself in another place altogether. You're going to have to figure out a way of seeing that place that makes sense to you. Um, you're going to have to figure out a way of dealing with the material of that place um, in a way that makes sense to you. Uh, and something that you said to me recently, which stuck in relation to all of that, is that you'd like to assert the fragment. Is there anything you can say about that? Well, if I was a cow, okay, the move to Ireland is like a no-brainer, right? Because it's green grass and wet. This is an ideal world for a cow, I think. 
I'm, I'm sorry. Let's just also remind you of the moment. That my wife's in the audience and I should not upset her. <laughs> the moment at which I understood that you were not actually as hardcore as you'd like to think you are was a moment <laughs> on, a, on a walk in the Newlands Forest. You were very, very cross about that. Yeah. You really were. You didn't like to be there. There were trees. You didn't like that. There was moss growing. It was gross to you. And at one point... And it was very wet. It was wet. <laughs> And at one point we crossed over what I considered to be quite a lovely, tranquil brook, you know, trickling down the mountainside. And you made a very lame joke about a river running through it and stormed off. <laughs> it was a generative moment because it was the beginning of the whole project, but I did realize in that moment that you, uh, yeah, you, you, weren't, you, weren't, you weren't as... Uh, um, invulnerable as you like to think you are. You did also call me that Christmas to complain about the fact that you were really enjoying creating a grass roof for Ruby's treehouse. Yeah. So you are, I mean, you know, it's not, you, you are joking about it, but it's, it's an interesting movement towards a less urban, right-angled space. Well, to the point, I mean, in closing, I suppose, uh, to the point about the fragment, I mean, uh, um, I think that's what, you know, that's what makes Johannesburg attractive, right? Is that it's, it's just a constant reshaping of fragments. There was a moment in which there was nothing. It was just, it was Savannah. Um, of course, there was an Iron Age in, in Johannesburg. There was um, human settlement way before the discovery of gold. But um, in any substantive form, the original iteration of the city may have existed in some rudimentary plans, but with every evolution of technology to extract more gold out of the ground, the vision, just, the mission, the vision for building Johannesburg just happened in real time. It's not like it was a 20 or 30 or 40 year master plan like we deal with today with our city. It was just constantly putting it all together in a somewhat fragmented way. Certainly our policies of exclusion of most and inclusion of some was a perfect example of fragmentation. I don't really know what to do with the fragmentary thing in Ireland other than the, the, the idea in some parts about sort of a very substantive sort of uh, kind of archaeological site, a site of ruin of thousands of years of history compared to Johannesburg, which whose history is literally kind of unwritten pre-1850s pre or something like that. So that sense of depth that Europe possesses, um, perhaps even the United States to some extent, but is, is something to mine in a whole nother way. And I'm not really sure how to do that yet, except I have this fantasy about thinking with better clarity and less noise about what's fragmentary about Johannesburg, because we're not on the other side yet. We're, we're on this side. We haven't made the move yet. Literally, the fragment is, what do you leave behind and what fragments do you take with you? And then, when those things are there and you are creating a new life and a new home, how do you assemble those parts to constitute some notion of whole, when in actual fact, time is the only thing that will help you construct 
a bridge that softens the pain of leaving behind something so intense in order to pursue something with equal intensity but perhaps a lot of difference. Time and, and a way of seeing, maybe. Yeah. Ways of seeing. I do want to say that this body of work is, um, is so exciting to me that it's really just a question of trying to find the tools and the correct mechanisms for the move abroad to sustain the relationship with the material such, such that one can continue to contribute to this language around me, to this war room. So a new war room will be built in, in wherever we live abroad and Bonnie and Ruby and Julian will come in with battle axes and helmets and armor and chain mail and we'll work out a new, a new path in one shape or form. But whatever it, it is, it'll be a building project and it'll be a project centered around construction and making of and reshaping the landscape as we like to do as men anyway. Thank you, Hobbs. I don't have any more questions for you. It should be said that over the years I have been supported, and I say it every time, but I'm supported by some really phenomenal women in this, in, in this company, uh, the David Crook Project space. And many of them are here tonight. May, Britt, Jill, Jacqueline. Jacqueline and I have done a lot of special things together. And it's, it, you can never underestimate how important it is in your creative process to have people that you can work with and trust who help show you the way at, at times when you couldn't see it at all. And that's a kind of common, like a logical thing to say, but because the environment in which we produce and the things that we make for these spaces are linked to the workshop and to our studio spaces, there's something unique about making exhibitions for a David Crook project environment because it's always informed by so much knowledge and, uh, and interest and enthusiasm and passion for you as the artist. So I always feel held. And to have you back here and to be next to you and to, to have the conversation is, is, is deeply meaningful because you know, we're constantly trying to make sense of all of these things. So thank you, David as always. And thank you, Jacqueline. And thanks to everybody in the room tonight. Thank you.